welcome to A Space for Oddities, a podcast with me, Katie. And me, Vincent. And uh, we are, we talk about the oddities, the fun oddities in the most loving way of the art and creative world. And today I am the teacher, Miss Locke, about Moondog, the Viking of Sixth Avenue. That makes me the student. <laughs> and so the teacher becomes the student. <laughs> so as, as Katie has a sip of wine there, um, I'll explain that. W- what we're doing here is is one person teaches, one pe- person learns. So I've, I know Moondog in passing because me and Katie have been friends for a while. Uh, and so I, I just know Moondog through Katie. But the idea is, is she's brought a topic that I will learn about. So I know a little bit. She knows the most. I know the mostest. I'm the hostess with the mostess. Exactly. That was a really nice summary. Thank you, Vincent. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And I might. I'll kick us. I'll talking of nice summaries. Hmm. I'll kick starters with a wee little um, sort of Wikipedia style wham bam thank you ma'am mini summary of Moondog, aka Louis Thomas Hardin. Ooh. He's got a real name. That's a really like sort of like American author's name. It's nice, isn't it? It's quite yeah. mm, mm, academic. <clears throat> Mm. Yeah, he does. He sounds. He sounds like Henry David Thoreau, that mm. sort of free-barrel American yeah. author. Louis Thomas Harden, mm. and he was born in 1916, and uh, deed in 1999. So he had a good. He had a good innings, as yeah. we say. He had a good, nice little innings, and as we say, he was called Moondog. And right, I'm going to hit you with all these things he did. He was Give me a all mu- these monikers. He was a musician. He was a computer. Mm. Computer. A computer. A computer. He was a composer. A theoretician, theoretician. He did theories of things. Mm. Uh, Poetry and an inventor of musical instruments. And he's quite famous in the fact that he was actually blind from the age of 16. And yes, so we called him the Viking of Sixth Avenue because he was knocking about New York City for about 30 years. Well, on, unsurprisingly, Mm. Sixth Avenue. Between the 52 and 55th streets, to be exact. And he had quite the style and look, and he were right. He was right good at music, like oh, proper good luck. He was right, were proper good luck at music. You seen our moon dog? He's great. Oh, moon dog's right spot on, <laughs> right spot on. Weird name, like, but I think I like it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't even know like how the New York City streets, like between fifty two and fifty fifth. I don't under. I don't even understand the <laughs> the layout. Like, I'll just take Sixth Avenue as the sixth one they built. I assume. Yeah, I I really genuinely think it was like that. I mean, you know, <clears throat> they had a lot else going on when they were colonizing America, so they were like, right, we'll just we'll just do straight up a grid system. Right, we're gonna go down here, down there, and not to like, ooh, but I have actually been to New York, hmm. and it's quite difficult to get lost in New York, even if you're 16 and in sixth form college, because it's literally, oh, I'm on Sixth Avenue, I need to get to Third Avenue. Oh, I'll walk. Three streets <laughs> that way. Is, is it really that simple? It's so simple. It's literally like, oh right, okay, one, two, street, one, two, three, four, five. I wish, I wish Britain was that simple. Because <laughs> when someone just says, "Oh, I live on Denon Street," you're like, "Where the hell is that?" <laughs> it's just a, it's like a pile of spaghetti, a sort of a British map because we're so old. Yeah. So we've got the the old charm, the old charm. So I wonder whether I'll kickstart you with a Ooh. mini biography. That's me kickstarting you. Uh, with a little biography, do interject at any point. I'll just rattle through what what his crack was. 
So yeah, so I mean, I think he's always been musical. Um, he's you know, it's recorded that he's been playing drums pretty much all his life, uh, and uh, he had one experience actually uh, <laughs> of an influence of Native American music. Actually, when he was a child, uh, his father took him to a Sundance. And he actually sat in the lap of a chief yellow calf and played a tom-tom drum made from buffalo skin. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, but like, who recorded that? Who, who looked at this small child and said, I'll remember who that is on that person's lap? <laughs> Moondog influenced him right from the start. It must have been so... Well, that's a good question, actually. Like, it must have been so impactful on his life that he was like... Oh, maybe he told that yeah, history rather yeah, than yeah. someone saying... Oh yeah, I saw a young lad on a lap, and that's definitely Moondog. <laughs> With particularly uh, Chief Yellowcalf as well. I mean, like, oh, yeah. maybe it was Chief Yellowcalf, but no, it was, it was, it, it will come down back to it. But he was really influenced by sort of Native American music, actually, quite percussiony, right. uh, quite sort of whoa, cool. So yeah, uh, but when he was sixteen, he was in a field and he found this object, and he didn't know what it was, and it turned out to be a dynamite cap. Right. And it exploded in his face, and that's how he ended up being blind. So he was like, he lived like pretty much all of his youth with a vision, and yeah. I was expecting the worst when you said he was blind from 16, and then you said he picked <laughs> some up in a field. I thought, there's only a few things this can be. <laughs> yeah. Either he like vehemently spread like dog crap in his eyes, <laughs> or he picked up an explosive of some kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he thought, oh, that's a nice little um, chocolate bar on the field. Somebody's I'll, I'll left with me. Put, I'll just put that close to my face. Oh, no. Taking the hell. Taking the, I know. Who just leaves dynamite like I mean, Do you know? when he was 16, that was quite early in the, in the 20th century, so surely that would have been expensive yeah. as well. Well, maybe it was left over from... Yeah, hang on, yeah, because he was born in 1916, yeah. so it would have been 1932. That, so, that would have been cheap. Perhaps it's from mining or something. Yeah, it must have been all like... Because he was born in uh, Bippity-Boppity-Bip, um, in Utah. Utah, I think it was Utah. Anyway, it was one of them flat countries, so it might have been like cold gold panning. Oh, okay, or something. Yeah, one it. of them, one of them. So yeah, so I mean, talk about taking massive shit on your life, suddenly going blind at sixteen. Yeah, I think <sighs> it's it's certainly not a step up. It's not like he was given like magical powers. He was he was quite heavily disabled. <laughs> It's, it's not a good thing to happen to you. And he ended up going to School of the Blind and um, he started... I mean, obviously, he's had this sort of history of music and it must have... You know, once you lose... That's a common thing. You lose one sense, another one's going to pop up and go, you're all right, I'm going to be right good for you at the minute now. Yeah, Do you so know what I mean? This, this School of the Blind he attended, from what I read, at least, mm. I believe it wasn't just like, oh, he picked up music there. It actually was like a really prestigious school. Mm. And it was it actually aided his music and his learning of music so much because they had a really good uh, program for teaching people without sight how to play and oh, other things like that. That's bloody brilliant, yeah. Because he was sort of learning music theory still in Braille and it became quite famous that he composed his music in Braille, actually, like cool. in life. So he was, you know, talk about being a whiz with Braille. Mm. I mean, composing music for 27 saxophones at once. That's pretty good. That's, That's pretty, pretty cool good. in Braille. I bet that I bet that felt great. Like just as mm. as like a, a person that like myself that can't read Braille mm. to just feel over a composition in Braille. <laughs> I feel like it would have like a sort of 
almost like a harmony to it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You, you wouldn't be able to feel the music. You wouldn't be able to know, because I can't read sheet music either, mm. but I feel like it would flow up and down and have different ways of being that it would feel almost harmonic, you know, to touch. It's beautiful Braille as well, isn't it? Actually, there's one picture, I think it was the New York Times, where some artist was obviously commissioned to do a picture of Moondog, mm. and it was his face and obviously some Braille of one of his compositions uh, sort of flowing over his face. Oh, yeah. It was beautiful. It was just so, like, abstract pattern, but it obviously means so much Braille. So, yeah, it's really cool, actually. It was like, oh, right, yeah, man. Defeats he was the on point it. a bit, though, because it wouldn't have been actual Braille. <laughs> so anybody that can read Braille would have just lost it completely. <laughs> you'd, you'd get, I'd get my embossing tool out for him. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, right. But there is popper Braille machines, isn't there? Um, Not in the New York Times, though. I'm sure they were like, well, this looks great, but... Uh, Screw any visually impaired users out there. Yeah. Well, you do the thing where you, you know you do the um, bit of information when you hover over a picture oh, for people who yes, like, like audio. A, a MetaLink almost. That's it. Yeah. So yeah, so he was he was all on it with his music, and well, next to my notes is why was he called Moondog? Do you know what? I didn't even figure that out. I didn't look to mm. to understand why he was called that. It's some. Do you know this is really sweet. This is really cool. It's in honor of a dog, of a childhood dog he loved as a boy called Lindy, who, in quotes, as we say, um, as we say, what? Um, <laughs> as we say in the business, you know, in the business of do- childhood dogs, <laughs> who used to howl at the moon more than any dog I knew of. It was just like a childhood that's, dog. That's nice. I think cool? he actually owned a wolf. It could have been. I think I saw somewhere that was a bulldog, actually. Okay. So Not very wolf-like. Not very wolfy, no. It's probably, well, bulldog's like... <laughs> <laughs> but, but he could have been blind, you know. This could have just... He could have thought it was a, just a particularly large and violent German shepherd. <laughs> just a bulldog. This bulldog's very big and fluffy, isn't it? Oh, no. no. Well, I remember bulldogs, but, you know, the breed could have changed in, in my years. This is... I feel like we're just taking the myth out of a disability now, so yeah. perhaps we'll stop. <laughs> Sorry, Moondog. So, yeah, so, yeah, so at 47, not age 47, in the year 1947, he adopted the name. And, yeah, so from that period of time, he lived as the street musician and poet in New York City, as we said, on his sort of regular patch. And I get the feeling that at the time, some people, especially at the start, some people saw him as just some sort of random, vagranty, strange, tall, intimidating-looking, beardy man who used to hang about and sell his words and stuff. But, you know, at first people were like, oh, didn't realise that he was really actually very clever and very good at composing music. I was going to say, like, if, if you haven't seen a photo of him, I would best describe him as almost hobo chic. He's got this sort of long, wizard-like beard. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't actually know what his eyes look like, but... From all the photos, he's not looking directly at camera because clearly mm. he doesn't know where it is. He's got sort of wispy, sort of obviously uncombed hair. And yeah. every chance that he can wear a large coat, I think he has worn one. So if you can imagine, you know, walking down a street and seeing... Because apparently he used to just stand there as well. He never sat because mm. he didn't want to be... He didn't want to be uh, looked down upon, or that was the thing. Yeah, so he like. he was like he he felt he could control his body language, mm. but he couldn't control where how people saw him or how he saw them. So he would stand on Sixth Avenue rather than sitting. So it's this sort of large, imposing man <laughs> that looks a bit like a homeless man, but he's actually very intelligent. Yeah, well, that's 
quite interesting because like some articles when you look him up some articles were like oh he was homeless and others claim that he always had somewhere to stay mm. but in fact in one interview he did say i think maybe near the sort of early days he did sleep in doorways but i think as uh he became more well known more well respected as a musician there was i mean well he lived with Philip Glass for a period of time. Oh, okay. So there was always people putting him up, I think, or he got to the point where... Because he was selling copies of his poetry and his like, musical philosophy as his way of getting by. Mm. So I think, obviously, as, as he got more well-known, more people were giving him money so he could afford okay. a pad. And I think, you know, he, he sort of lived quite a normal life in one sense because he did get married for a period and he raised a daughter... And there's a picture of him with his wife, actually. And she's this beautiful, dark-haired lady who looks like dead 60s and, and Ooh, really yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't find about his daughter, but I don't want to be like weird stalker. Oh, like where's your daughter? Internet. Show me your daughter. <laughs> I'm an <laughs> yeah. internet sleuth. Yeah. I've got a section called his drip fit, as do you know how the youngsters say? Drip fit? Yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Oh, if, if, you, if you, your outfit, your fit is good, it's drip like, oh. check out my drip fit, yo. Whoa, okay. I know, I know. I don't even. I don't have a TikTok account, but I'm down with the youngins. I'd say, yeah, my drip fit. That's that's trendier than I am. That's fucking trendy, yeah, man. Well, yeah, well, I'll go into it because he didn't just wear a big coat. He wore a cloak. It wasn't a coat. It was a bloody cloak because this is adding to the wizard vibes. This is massive. Well, it's Viking. It was his big jam because he bloomin' loved Nordic mythology. It was right into it. He even had an altar to Thor in his country home once he, like, made enough money. An altar to Thor? Yeah, man. Wow. <laughs> he really loved Nordic culture. And, like, as much... He loved Nordic culture. He also loved Germany. And that's actually where he ended up uh, in the sort of mid-70s. He ended up staying in Germany, and that's where he spent the rest of his life. Oh, OK. Yeah. And, in fact, actually, just to round off the biography, his tomb is has uh, got a death mask on it. And it's really cool. Ooh. It's got its full beard on, and it's like this like pot alien egg pod that's just landed on a grave. It's just like moon dog rests here, sort of thing. <laughs> Does it actually speak, or is that just your impression? Of <laughs> that's this my death impression. Mask? I'm gonna go and I'll stand behind it, and, and people come visit. That could be your life's work. That, that would be me, my <laughs> dedication to moon dog. So yeah, so he was right into his Vikings, in his drip fit. And, um, you know, he added the... Vi- well, this is really cool, actually. Is that he added a Viking-style horned helmet, hmm. not as a gimmick, but because, like, at the early days, because obviously he was tall, bearded, sort of quite mystically sort of vibe, that he would get comparisons with Christ or Monk. But because I think it, it was actually, in fact, the explosion that blinded him, that that was what triggered his rejection of Christianity. Because it was from a religious background. Ah, I didn't know that. I think his dad was even a, a priest or a preacher or something, but very religious background. But he started rejecting it, and he was like, no, man, no, it's, I, I, I don't feel it anymore. How could this happen to me? And he was like, I don't want to be compared to Christ. So that's when he got a big F off Viking oh, helmet. Okay. And that's how he got to be known as the Viking of Sixth ah, Avenue. Bit a bit of branding there. Almost. Yeah, it was him. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to wear a silly hat, lol. No, he's like, don't look at me as Christ. You know, I've left that behind. Mm, mm, yeah, I yeah. am I am my own person. Yeah. You will see me as a Viking. Yeah, I'm into Thor. I'm badass. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm cool. In fact, actually, it's reported that in the 80s when... People started finding out that the Vikings never actually wore hats with horns. 
he were gutted. Oh. He were like, bloody hell, I've just spent... My world's coming down around me. <laughs> I've spent 40 years wearing a Viking cord helmet and it's not real. Bloody hell. You mean you didn't pull this off a Viking's corpse? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a great... I mean, it, it was really like an expression of himself and he stuck really true to it because there's this great quote I found about it, uh, about staying true to himself. He said, I had a lot of offers from people who said that they would help me, but I had to dress conventionally. But I valued my freedom of dress more than I cared to advance my career as a composer. I just wanted to do my own thing. That's cool, man, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I like that. It yeah. was just like, you know, I, it'd be nice to be helped further, but my own personality and my own way of doing things is more important than a, a financial reward or anything yeah. like that. Staying true to yourself. I think that's there's something that I've been talking to, like um, some of my pals, like sort of how much do you want to be commercialised? It's great to earn money from your art and make a living from it, but when at what point do you start sell, selling your soul almost? That's the dirty word, isn't it? Selling out. <laughs> yeah. Like you've got to decide where selling out is for you, whether... Mm. You know, for him, selling out was not being true to his own personal style. Mm. And for us day to day, perhaps selling out is, well, at least in my current case, would be to do something that doesn't align with my values as a creative. Yeah, that yeah. would be me selling out, choosing the, the value of the job over the emotional impact or something like, you know, choosing mm. the, the money over the lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, like you're not going to do a, a a poster for a arms uh, company <laughs> no but to uh to segue onto that i have done design for an arms company before and it it rotted my bones really did really. you do that uh, so to the listeners out there i used to work at a publishing company and mm. we used to create guides for large events one of the large oh. events we did was the huge military event in london oh. where all the countries come together to buy their arms um, and I won't mention it, the actual name of it. You can Google it and you'll figure it out. Um, just because I don't think my previous employer would be too happy with me talking about it. <laughs> but I've, I've literally designed spreads where we had pictures of automated tanks on there. Uh, so I haven't, I haven't exactly sold anything or I haven't designed a poster mm. for them. But I have definitely glamorized large bombs. And it's it, at the time... It definitely made me stop and think, what am I doing? Mm. But it, it was another thing of like, okay, but how much am I in this chain? You know, is the is the war criminal going to be swayed by a nice looking editorial? Or is he really just there trying to buy the biggest arms he can get his hands on? Yeah. I mean, they are famous war criminals for their passion for typography. Yeah, I know. I, I got a message from Gaddafi saying, love the Futura. <laughs> I mean... That is my favorite. That's my favorite font. So me and Gaddafi would you probably and, have a lot to yeah, exactly. speak on. That is my favorite font. Medium, just a straight up nice medium of future, please. So that's really interesting, man. Thank yeah, you. cool. Welcome to our pretend pub. We're gonna top up on our beverages, and we're gonna try and get some nice audio for you. I've just pure tapped the microphone <laughs> instead. Can you get a Can you get a glug on that? Do you See, reckon? See, you've got to get quite. You've got to pour quite a few. Quite a bit to get a glug on. Because I've still got a bit of wine left. See if you can get a glug. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the glug ruined by you going, oh, yes. <laughs> and me going, <laughs> yeah. it, We even peaked the mic at one point there. I'll have a little bit. Go on. Right, we'll do it, do it right next to okay, the microphone. Okay, okay. I'll stay quiet for this one. That'll just make people want to have a piss. 
Oh, yes, let's do a little chin oh, chin. Oh, oh, yes, yes. We're doing out of a nabble mugs. Cheers in our pretend pub. Because we're actually outdoors in a fire. Um, in a fire. In a fire. By the river. I, I am. In a forest. I am at third degree burns, but my <laughs> um, my commitment to this podcast continues. It's dedicated. Don't ask how the microphones are okay. Well, this is just an ethereal recording from uh, the spirits of the trees wafting along the airways into your ear holes. Is it not? Is it not? Is it not? Mm-hmm. Moondog. Moondog. Is your dog on the moon? Because it's probably Russian. <laughs> <laughs> so we managed to offend blind people and the Russians. I hope there's... <laughs> We should uh, return to the podcasting and drink less. Yeah, what? Drink less? Okay, cool. Back to it. (laughs) Back to it, back to it. Look at that that seamless transition then. (laughs) So, yeah, so we've talked about his drip fit, uh, as I keep saying, because it amuses me. Um, but yeah, have we <laughs> probably not talked about his music enough. No, no, we haven't really spoken <laughs> about music at all. He's a music. Yeah, no, we've talked about his. His. He just looks cool, man. But his music is so. I don't want to just say the word cool, but it's so cool. It's so different. It's so original because it's so eclectic, and it mixes all these things together. But because it's so well crafted, he pulls it off. He mixes, you know, like military bass bands, ragtime, jazz. Native American percussion, street sounds. He uses a lot of inspiration from street sounds. You know, he knocks about on Sixth Avenue, so he's using foghorns, he's using all sorts, and he's just and he's just so on it with his music theory that he just like he could pull it off. Do you know what mm. I mean? He's he's very much an outlier. Like I'm a I'm a big jazz fan, so I know of Moondog, but I don't have any of his records. He sits out there with Sun Ra. He's kind of this. Um, everybody that's into jazz knows who he is. But he's not, he's not like a, well, I guess he could be for some people, but for me, he's not like a listening album. You wouldn't sit down and listen to Moondog for an evening. Moondog's like this sort of oddity that you're like, ooh, wow. Listener, did you get that? I put the oddity in there. Ooh. A space for oddity. Uh, this, is, this is a safe space. This is a safe space for oddities. <laughs> I'm going to hit you with some numbers now. Oh, yes. I'm going to hit... Number time. Uh, do you remember El Nombre, the yes, yes the, the mouse that would help you... The Mexican mouse, yeah. which helped the village by counting numbers. Yeah, you'd just draw it in the sand and the villagers would be like, oh, thank <laughs> Christ, I know how to draw the number three now. Let's solve that crime. <laughs> thank you for coming and just hand-holding our illiterate town. <laughs> El Nombre! I loved El Nombre. El Nombre! Writing numbers in the sand. I don't know if that was the actual theme song, but anyway... <laughs> Moondog. Right, you carry on. We're yeah. talking about Moondog, not El Nombre. That's another podcast entirely. Uh, he has written over 80 sympathi- sympathies? Symphonies. Symphonies? Very sympathetic. Oh, uh, it's very sympathetic of the yeah. listening community. Uh, I've got it down as 300 rounds, which must mean some something to somebody who knows... 300 rounds? Rounds, which is... Uh, a music thing I don't know what that is When you start looking into Moondog The people who know a lot about music theory Start telling you about all of his amazing music theory doings Ah And it goes right over my head I go, oh right, well that sounds good That's brilliant That's All those great. rounds he did Wait, 300 uh, So many piano pieces Scores for bass bands, string orchestras Many books, many compositions You know, he's worked with people like Julie Andrews 
you know, Janis Joplin. Ooh, um, really? Yeah. Wow. There's been a lot of, like, in the second half, maybe, of the 20th century, he really, like, the sort of influence and the collaborations just went, whoa, people were like, oh, man, this guy's cool. And he's also, I've got it down here, he's left a nine-hour piece for 1,000 musicians and singers called Cosmos. And it's not yet to be performed. Wow. I know, yeah. Cosmos. That's, Cosmos. That's very... I was speaking about Sun Ra before. That's a very Sun Ra thing. Yeah, well, it's like... It's funny because, like, I do feel that like Sun Ra's quite warm. Mm. Like the sun. And Moon Dog's not cold. Sun and Moon. Come on. Exactly. Yeah. But I don't Moondog's even know why quite... I didn't make that connection. Ooh. And, like, to get a little bit of it is quite famous. Is He's characterised by what he called snake time. Because it was a slithery rhythm. <laughs> in times that aren't ordinary. And in fact, he said, I'm not going to die in 4-4 time. Oh, that's brilliant. That is cool, man. I'm yeah. not going to die in 4-4 time. That's punk rock, man. That is really punk rock. That's like, punk. screw your 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned before, he really was influenced by Native American music. And in fact, in 1949, he travelled to a Sundance where he actually performed some percussion and uh, flute and Did he mixed it in with some ambient noise and all sorts. Sort of reminiscent to when he sat with Mr. Yellow Calf. Yeah, man. Who, if, if you had yellow calves, like, even if that's your legs or a cow... A cow. Either way, they shouldn't be yellow. Maybe they're a nice blonde yellow, like ooh, a nice dusky... Ooh. Almost a bit like Highland Coo. Like sexy calves. <laughs> I know, yeah, yellow is such a sexy colour. No, blonde. Blonde, yeah, right, yes, yeah, yeah, blonde. You, they put a bit of lippy on. Yellow calves have the most fun. Gets a bit, yeah, it gets a bit lonely out there on the prairies. <laughs> you think, Ooh. oh, God, we've offended the Native Americans oh, now. Oh, I know. <laughs> this, is, this is the podcast that gets banned. I know. <laughs> Demonetised for abuse. We're, we're going to be cancelled in, what, our third, second Oh, episode? second episode. Uh, easily. Easily. So easily. he would be categorised as jazz, really, wouldn't he? I think the the best way to sort of summarise it, he did everything, but it was he was very influenced by classical orchestra, technically, but I think jazz is the best way. If you're going to yeah, say one word. Because jazz doesn't really have a rule set. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's kind of... there's a, you, you hear something, you're like, oh, this is jazz. But it, it doesn't really have a boundary. Mm. Um, so I, I feel like he would fit into that, especially with his mm. sort of barbershop quarter-esque sort of, <laughs> what about dog rights? <laughs> well, that brings me on to my next point of his biggest jams. Oh, yeah. And we've got Bird's Lament. Now, I have previously done a recording of my version of Bird's Lament so we don't get screwed over by recording. So I don't know whether Edison Vinnie wants to add this in now. Here is Bird's Lament. Performed by Katie Locke, originally written by Moondog. Do, 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 Did you know that um, that was actually a tribute to jazz saxophonist Charlie Bird Parker? Oh, I love the bird. Yeah, man. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I guess, I guess, yeah, it's kind of his style with that. 
Do you need that leading mm. bass sound? Even though I don't think there is a bass in it, it's just a it's just a nice. It's like a deep sax. Or yeah, something yeah. Going on. But that is really Charlie Parker's kind of sound. That that walking bass line, and yeah. then interjects with some like out of time. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think they wanted to collaborate, and um, and Charlie Bird Parker was an admirer of Moondog, but I think he passed away before they could. That's a Moondog wrote Bird's Lament, and that's like his most famous tune. In fact, it was even sampled in a modern song. Yes. Uh, it's Mr. Scruff, isn't it? That's it, yes. Keep moving, pard, or you'll be dead and gone. <laughs> and then, so yes, High on the Rocky Ledge is another big, big tune, quite similar to Bird's Lament, quite sort of jazzy. Ooh. And then, as Vinny just gave you a teaser, then, Enough About Human Rights, which is this great song about, like, what about... Bird rights, what about mole rights, what about, what about whale rights? <laughs> if, you, if you can think of any being that has one or two syllables for its name, he kind of throws that in there. It's, about, it's like a three-minute track, and I think his idea is like, yeah, human rights are great, but we're destroying everything else around us. Like, humans need more rights, but they also need to give more rights to the things about us. So he kind of just laments on about, what about frog rights? What about, what about... What about bee rights? <laughs> what about graces and a pen holder rights? You can really <laughs> fit it in. You can literally go around your house and go, what about carton of milk rights? <laughs> it's great fun. It's such a fun song. I know it's got like big intentions, but sometimes you just go, what about cat rights? <laughs> but it's not really a listening piece. It's kind of like a, just a spoken word recording. Yeah, it you is. wouldn't sit down with a nice mm. coffee and be like, well, put on uh, Moondog's what about X rights? Oh, well, I did that today as part of my research. I was like, oh, get a nice brew, wake up from a nap, put about, what about some human rights yeah. on? But that sums up his music quite well. Like, he mm. was he was very eclectic. He was very avant-garde. Mm. I think he's been described as an outsider musician a few times. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Because usually that describes somebody that doesn't have musical talent or hasn't trained it. So I was going to say more about the, the training, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's like uh, Daniel Johnston... Uh, he was classed as an outdoor, outdoor, outdoors. outside. We loved the mountains. Oh, he loved Daniel. He loved him. So yeah, so he was, he was on it like a Scotch bonnet, and he even invented his own musical instruments. And his most famous is the trimba. Yes, I saw this. It's, yeah. Uh, if I can remember rightly, I don't know if you'll have an image in front of you, but if I remember rightly, it is like a, a wooden box mm. with a large metal circle on the side and what looks like sort of, um, you know those frog back toys that you had and it was a frog and you crunk, yeah. crunk, kind of that kind of waved metal shape mm. on top. And I have no idea how you operate it or what it sounds like, but it looked great. It's cool. It's quite, it's a bit space-agey because like I said, it's a bit, it's a bit Bauhaus, space-agey, Wooden and it's quite big. It's probably about the size of your torso. Is it really? I yeah, thought it yeah. was handheld. Yeah, well, I thought that as well when I first saw it, and then I saw a video of somebody playing it because uh, I think there was there was a chap who he taught how to play it and how to build it. There was mm. a particular um, music I can't remember his name now, <laughs> but yeah, there's a video of him playing it anyway with uh, a cellist as well, actually doing birds. Wow, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. This cellist really um, nails it. Uh, but yeah, so this. Trimber is sort of this weird hodgepodge and it's very percussiony and uh, the man who was playing it he was sort of tapping one side with like a maraca and then sort of hand patting a little drum as part of it it's like four different percussion instruments in one essentially mm. I think that's the best I think, way I think it would sit somewhere in between like a hurdy-gurdy 
and uh, pheromone. Like, it's that kind of oddity of sound, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and sound-wise, but it's quite primal and raw in how it's made. It's not... Like, linking back to the Native American sound yeah. that he was into, it's really got that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need to plug it in. That's, yeah, that's exactly. The thing. Yeah, it's a lot more portable. Maybe for Sixth Avenue. Oh, exactly. Yeah, maybe he stood there with his trimba. <laughs> yeah. So, but that was only one of several musician uh, musical. That was the only did. one that really stuck about, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> he had he had lots of concepts and ideas, but I I think that was the one that had a commercial value almost. Like I think there mm. were lots of products that he had designed and come up with that just wouldn't fit in anywhere else other than his own music, other than his own sound. But that one possibly could, likely because it had Native American roots to it. Mm, yeah, everybody was like, Every, you know, I love a good bit of drumming. Do you know, I see live drumming and I can't help but well up. If I see like a samba band in a festival or when we do the puppet pageant with work and the samba band start up, I cannot fail to I well up. I don't know, it's something really? I honestly, yeah. I went to this Beltane thing in Edinburgh uh, a couple of years ago and there was a lot of live drumming. And there's something about live drumming. I just get emotional, I just start crying. I just start crying. Brass bands don't get me like that. Not brass bands, but drumming. Oh, okay. I mean, a brass band, I do love a brass band because that's my Yorkshire roots. Ah, uh, okay. Um, do, but, you, do you like well up at like uh, Morris dancers as well? Oh, I just want to be the Morris dancer. Do you really? I, I, do you know, I looked it up and there's the Carlisle Sword and Clog uh, group. Sword and Clog. I know. How <laughs> cool and badass is that? I don't know. I feel like, I, and, and Katie's looking at me right now. I feel I feel like Morris dancers is social suicide. <gasps> Mate. You're not in the right social circles if you think it's social suicide. I know, I, I might have to cut you out of mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the end. This is the last episode of the podcast. Well, I'm not part of it because the commitment, the time commitment to be for all the performances and all the festivals hmm. and the rehearsals and you need and it's like way out in like CA forty two or something <laughs> crazy. You need a car to get to the it's like some tiny village hall or something. Yeah. So but if it was town centre. Yeah. I'd be there. Would I you would really? be and I know you like your folk stuff, but I didn't I think it extended to Morris dancing because that's traditionally sort of Bill, who lives in the village and doesn't like foreigners. <laughs> I think that, well, that is quite interesting, actually. I've, that, I mean, this is such a big topic, but the sort of, I'm really into my British folklore, really into the sort of British magic, spelt with a Y instead of an I. Oh, uh, no, that's that's when you're legit. Is when you spell it with my jig. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like it's not your jig. It's my jig. <laughs> is that when you say instead of saying fairies, you say fay? Do you know what I mean? That's yeah, like when you're. Yeah, that's yeah. when you're like you're groovy with it. And I'm, I'm absolutely just so knee deep into it. And there's quite a lot of discussion in that community about nationalism and um, self identity and uh, country identity but being open, and then there's, you know, there's a great article in this Zine or Zine. Ooh, Zine. Zine or Zine. Well, I'm not going to correct you, because I just replaced the A in magic with a Y instead of the I, and I said magic, which is an idiot move. (laughs) 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 I I say Zine because I say magazine. Yeah. But I can understand the pronunciation of the Z on its own as Zine. Yeah, I I must admit I say Zine. It sounds cooler, doesn't it? Zine. 
That Moondog would say Zine. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, me and Moondog are like this. Yeah. Moondog would be like, have a look at my Zine. <laughs> uh, it's, it's full of poetry and it gives you instructions how to build an instrument I've just invented that uses your mind. He was the OG Zine man because he was self-publishing all of his music and his oh, stories did, and his ah, poetry. So he would have said Zine because it, oh, it's American to say Zine yes. as well, isn't it? So, yeah, so um, the lasting influence of Moondog is hmm. pretty major. I mean... Uh, I mean, I've, I've briefly mentioned that he lived with Philip Glass and he's one of the big sort of fans of Moondog. He talks about him all the time. You know, he's, he's a massive influence on all these minimal composers. And he pops up in, <laughs> on the Wikipedia article. He pops on the sort of songs refer, in, on influence section. He pops up on so many songs by Pentangle, T-Rex, Prefab Sprout, Janis Joplin, Julie Andrews, you know... <laughs> Keep them coming. I was, I was just like, I mean, those are the big boys, but they are pretty damn big boys. Yeah, they're huge. Like, yeah, T Rex was a, a a power to be, you know. Mm. Well, I mean, T Rexes are powerful, but T Rex was <laughs> the tiny arms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But prefab, I mean, prefab spout. My parents are big fans of prefab spout, and I must admit, I, I am as well, just through proxy. But like, you know, oh wow. Oh no, put oh, that no. away somewhere. Put that away. I've got. I'm such a, a finger fidgeter, and don't say anything. Um, but yeah, so he was a massive influence and they referred to him or there's a lot of people who actually, because his compositions are out there, they record his compositions. So Kenny Graham recorded a Moondog composition with a 13-piece band and then he made some more work with that band, influenced by Moondog. So there's a lot of people going, hey, he's good him, I'm going to do, I'm going to do some of that. And in fact, actually one of his Moondog's biographers, Robert Scotto, Actually said, any everybody who was anybody met Moondog. Oh, oh! Anybody who was everybody met Moondog, and I feel like I want to meet him. Maybe I need to do a séance. Is that like the? Do you remember the Free Trade Hall thing where, like, there was only like the Sex Pistols performed for the first uh, time? Yeah, and yeah. And there was only like fourteen people there, but mm. like four hundred people claimed they were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it probably is. It probably is, and he's popped up so much. I mean. He's actually in the film uh, The Big Lebowski. Is he? He actually is in all. Bloody hell. I didn't realise it until doing this research and it popped up and went, oh, it's one of my favourite films, one of my favourite music artists, and I never made the connection. And, there's, and it's not a massive amount. I think it's like two minutes. They use one of his compositions when... It's quite near the start in... Um, um, the Actor Man. Um, so I'm quite ignorant of films. I haven't watched this film. <gasps> I know what it is. I know it's influence on cult <laughs> film fans, but I have not watched it. I know there is a character called The Dude. The Dude, of and course. And I know it's about bowling. Somewhat. Yeah, it's all about bowling. But, <laughs> well, I mean, you hate Tolkien. You're a Tolkien I'm fascist. Not... <laughs> <laughs> if I'm a fascist of one thing, it is J.R.R. Tolkien. I hate them hobbits, them damn hobbits. <laughs> no, but it, yeah, I mean, I tell you what, that is your activity to take home from this podcast, is watch Big Lebowski, not just Vinny, everybody listening, and find the moon dog in that film. Yes, Mrs. Lark. Yes, Mrs. Lark. There's currently a major Kickstarter hmm. for a full-length full documentary to be made about him. I mean, the trailer looks amazing. Oh. It looks so good. I mean, they've got some great interviews, some archive footage that you can't find anywhere else. But, like, it was around, like, 2015, 16. So I don't know whether they got enough and they never did it, or I don't know what the crack is. 
but there's like Jarvis Cocker talking about it. Ooh. It's all sorts. It's Jarvis. really cool. Oh. Do you know, my? I, I swear, I think my mum lived near or went to the same school as Jarvis did. Not the same time. Sheffield. Sheffield. They're both from Sheffield, so that's close enough that, for me. It's good enough. It's somewhat enough. related. You know, if you were from Sheffield and you had wood chip on the wall and you didn't notice him at all, then <laughs> you know what? You could you could know Jarvis somewhat. You had me for a second then with the wood chip. I was <laughs> like, what's going on? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so that brings me on. to So that's, his, that's a whistle-stop tour through the Dog of Moon's life. Now, last time in the uh, Golem episode, we had a sort of... Oddity section. Oddity section. Oddity section. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was really, that was really soulful. I uh, know. I am quite musical if I have a uh, multiple glasses of wine down my neck. Yes, we, uh, we are enjoying uh, a Merlot this evening. Uh, Veneto, 2019, product of Italy, and it's called Artusi from Co-op. <laughs> Shout out to the co-op though. They're really co- they're the shout most- out co-op. Oh mate, shout co-op. Most ethical supermarket in the land. For you and for me, I'm mean, getting biscuits at 10 p.m. Oh, they're fucking spot on for that actually. 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. I mean, shout out to the troopers who work at bloody co-op. Big up Carlisle co-op. Denton home, the <laughs> urban village. Urban, urban, urban village. We'll do a rap about Denton home one day. But let me take you through my oddity section. Now, he's a bit interesting, is our moon dog, as you may have noticed in the past however many minutes of audio entertainment we have provided for you tonight. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, one of his little fascinations was with the number nine. The number nine? The number nine. Number nine? (laughs) Why are you saying the number nine like if you, the, the the Beatles song Number 9 oh, I don't know that number song Number 9 I don't know that song man I'm, I know that really well Because I'm white <laughs> Yeah I'm, I'm Yeah really not white me I'm so white I'm so white you just, uh, But then you, You're not A boring male man <laughs> So It's not expected That you know The whole Beatles Back catalogue Yes uh, it's like when somebody wears like the Ramones shirt and it was like, uh, name me uh, five of their songs uh, before you can wear that shirt, please. Can you tell me the the rap song that the bassist recorded, please? <laughs> what? <laughs> Is that a real thing? I don't know. One of the Ramones made a rap single, didn't Jesus they? Jesus Christ, really? Yeah, <gasps> it wasn't good. I need to investigate this. My my good friend James introduced me to this rap song after I knew who the Ramones were, mm. but um, he introduced me to the rap song that one of them recorded, and it's it's as good as Wham rap. It's bloody rubbish. Wow! But it's kind of culty, a bit like Tommy Wiseau. It's a yeah. bit culty. So bad, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, I like that sort of. I'll have to look into that. So yeah, I mean, Moon Dog is so good. He's good. Yeah. I'll put it that way. But yes, he loved the number nine, and he believed the number contained. A universal code born through sound. And this is this is a bit of a quote I've got online because, you know, these are quite big words for me. I normally just do pictures, like. Um, and it's all about superhuman intelligence. So, like, here's the quote he says about it. I found that in the first nine overtones, a principle of musical sound waves, there's a code which can only have been conceived by God. I call it a megamind. That code not only proves that God exists, but I have found that there are secret laws in there referring referring, referring to cosmic construction. These things are all there 
in the first nine overtones. Wow. I know, yeah. So he's gone like, well, I mean, you were saying earlier that he was quite theoretical. Yeah. Um, so that sounds like theoretical physics, you know, how people mm. have different ideas for how the universe started and things like that. So he's he's putting this sort of almost ethereal feeling on the number nine. <laughs> yeah. Which the, the Chinese have the same for number eight, don't they? Because it's yes. an infinite... So mm. it's an infinite shape, you know. It loops around on itself. So, I mean, it, have you got any further information on for his reasoning on this? You know, why does he think yeah. that the number nine is so prominent in in our mm. universe? Well, I've got another bit of a quote from a found online, and it's quite thick from uh, music theory. And I'm going to read it out loud because it boggles my mind until the last five words. Okay. This fascination permeated many of his poems written in ambient nonometer and his compositions. Um, for example, The Overtone Tree, a symphonic project for four conductors based upon the first nine overtones, a thousand-part canon nine hours in length. Oh, that must be the Cosmos um, one we were talking about. And a sax for... Sax packs for a sax composed for nine saxophones. So I don't know whether he just liked patterns of nine. Yeah, I feel like perhaps he's just made more prominence on the number nine because he was totally mad. <laughs> yeah. Like, like if you yeah. if you go away from this podcast and you listen to Moondog, you'll realise that he's just a bit bonkers and that's kind of what's great about him. Yeah. So for, perhaps he just w- picked out the number nine and went, oh, that's a nice number, I'll pick that. That runs with it, that runs with it. And it's, it's almost contradictory because he like, before he was like, I'm a Viking, I'm not Christian, but then he's finding a god in the number nine as well and then he's almost like oh i'm not going to do four four music tones but i love the number nine so what i mean i i don't know enough about music theory to know anything <laughs> other than four four perhaps yeah. it's like a nine four yeah count of nine to each four four point nine over seven nine <laughs> yeah so that's, that's neither of us have studied music if it's not clear <laughs> yeah yeah well let's talk about music theory um, Even though we don't know anything about anything music. about music theory, so yeah, so that's a sort of a uh, that's quite an oddity, isn't it? It's like, an oddity within Moon Dog because it it sort of contradicts almost some of the things he said before, but it's also like this really really interesting concept that he's been developing, the Mega Mind. It's quite a legacy, isn't it, to say like, oh, well, I believe that the number nine has this this almost godlike appearance to it. It almost controls everything around mm. us, and he's saying that it. it is in every, if I understand what you were saying, it was in every sound, isn't it? Is that what he's trying to get across? Yeah, I feel like that is like the secret laws referring to cosmic construction. I mean, that's pretty big. That is secret laws. Cosmic that's, that's, construction. That's Gestapo stuff. <laughs> secret laws. Yeah. Well, he did love Germany. Not so. No. <laughs> no. No insinuations. Oh, flipping right. heck. Right, so we're gonna, we're gonna... I've offended everyone else, but you have really hit the nail I've... on the head there with the Nazism. Well, I mean, there's all this contemporary stuff about um, these right-wingers using Vikings, isn't there? Have you Is seen there? all of that? Yeah. Not, not techno-Viking. Oh, no, 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 no. Techno-Viking. I think he's even um, LGBTQ, actually, techno-Viking. I'm sure there's something... Nobody with abs that good could be straight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Techno Viking is a legend, and that's more homework for other people there. So, yeah, so that's all bits and bobs. I'm going to end, I'm going to end, I'm going to be really professional and end you on a quote. And there's a lot of talk about him about minimalism and, oh, radical. And he was like, no, mate, I'm just like, I was inspired by Bach, 
all the classical composers, and he says, he described his music as being the art of concealing art, maximum effect, but with minimum means. Oh, that's cool. That's, I mean, that's So he's cool. saying, like, I'm making art, but you won't tell, you won't be able to know that it's art because I'm concealing it, and I'm making everything I can from the least amount of components. Yeah, he's kind of... I feel like he really shines up to this hobo appearance as well. He's saying, like, look, I'm on the street and I'm sleeping in doorways, but I can make this brilliant music and mm. I'm going to make my own instruments. I feel like he's 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 far away from these... As much as I love jazz, you've got these people that were educated highly in these mm. schools of all this music. Yeah, yeah. And he said, do you know what? I can I can just enjoy music and make brilliant sounds. And perhaps it's not going to be to the popular taste. It's not going to be hegemonically mm. accepted, but it's going to be a piece of art and you're going to respect it as such, whether yeah. you know it or not. You can make fantastic... You can make the Mona Lisa with just a piece of charcoal you've took out the fire. Yeah, exactly. From a bonfire. Exactly. It's, I think that's it. And, and it might not even look like a photorealistic rendition of the Mona Lisa, but it's art disguised as art. It's Can, maximum effect. Yes, exactly. It's like, pow! And yeah. I think it's worked because we're talking about him here today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... We're two children timeless. of the north of England <laughs> speaking about a man that dressed as a Viking on the 6th Avenue in New York <laughs> yeah. that made music yeah. about dog rights. He's kind of like a, a spiritual uncle. Ooh, I'll take that. Yeah, I like oh, that. I like Do you know what that. I mean? Like, the kind of uncle that's like, hey, come look at this. And he's got, a, like, a, <laughs> a weird record that you've never heard of. Yeah. Like some steel pan record that he thinks is fantastic, but he's totally crap. <laughs> you just think, what? He, steel pan? Moondog is our everybody's spiritual uncle. Oh, I think we should conclude on that. Yeah, that exactly. too perfect. Thank you for listening. This was Katie. This was Vincent. I will... I'll see you on the flip side, Joe. Brav. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>